We're on the last main chapter of this book, which is called Just This. And this section is called Here, Just an Apostrophe. When there is a powerful urge in the mind to be getting to the next place or planning the next event, worrying about whether or not we will make it there, or if we will become ill, or if we won't get what we want, or if we will have difficulties along the way, Whenever we see the mind getting caught in those types of worries and plans, we can reflect that really there's nobody going anywhere. These are just conditions of the mind that are changing. It's always the case that the experience of the world only happens in our mind. There might be a perception that this body is going from one place to another, but all those perceptions happen in our mind and heart. The heart is the center of the world. The heart of the universe is your heart. This is where the world is experienced. It begins and ends here, exactly here. None of us really go anywhere. So that uh, uh, that phrase, there, um, there's nobody going anywhere, there are just conditions of mind that are changing. Um, that was something that Lumpur Sumato said the day I set off on a, an 800 mile walk through England. <laughs> which I've been planning for many, uh, many weeks and months. And uh, so that was back in 1983. And I requested permission to walk uh, on a Tudong walk, uh, a long walk through the countryside between um, Shithurst Monastery in West Sussex and, and uh, Harnham uh, Vihara, as it was then, uh, up, it had just opened up in Northumberland. And uh, the... Um, the the way that the the walk had taken shape, I just asked permission. Can I can I walk to to Harnham? And then word spread that this was a, a plan, and uh, I didn't have a a fixed idea for the route to go, and I just waited to to see what kind of invitations there were or, or um, what uh, people would make contact. And so the the people who did who did get in touch um, were on a very, it turned out to be a very wiggly route through the countryside from. Uh, uh, say uh, in London and then up in East Anglia and then across in, in uh, Yorkshire and uh, the Lake District and then uh, up in the in uh, the North Tyne in the, the Tyne Valley. So it ended. It was not a straight line at all. It was not the, the shortest route, but it was the about about six people got in touch before we set off. And uh, they were dotted in this, this sort of wiggly pattern. So we just followed that route through the English countryside. Um, myself and uh, layman Nick Scott. So there had been many, many weeks and months preparing for that. And it was the day we were about to set off. It was, I think, uh, early May of 1983. And so uh, it was a kind of a blessing and a farewell as we were set, just about to set out um, from the monastery. So it was a great advice that, uh, that, that he gave in that respect, that um, there's nobody going anywhere where the mind is very filled with going to this place and this place and this place and, and uh, how it's going to be and what we're going to do and, uh, and so on. Because it's pointing to the fact that, you know, like right now we can say we're sitting in the sala at, at Amravati, but in this moment the uh, experience for every single one of us is built up out of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, memory, um, it's this is a mental event. I'm not saying we're, we're, it's all a dream or it's just completely created by the mind, but 
<clears throat> for each one of us, all we have ever known for our entire life, ever since we were an infant, or e even in utero, before we were born, it's been known through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking. And it's all been known through the agency of this mind. Uh, we can say that physically we're, we're here at Amravati, but Amravati is, is in the mind. So it's a, um, a different way of seeing uh, the world and a, a theme that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would, uh, would bring up uh, over and over. But on the theme of letting go of becoming, if there's a recognition that the world happens here, <laughs> it's known here that we never really go anywhere because everywhere where you go geographically, it's always here. Wherever we've been around the planet, where, wherever you were at that time, it was here. That makes sense? So all of us are here. They're different. There are different here's, but all of us have, have through our entire, for our entire life have always been exactly here at the center of the universe. Um, and so the, the, the perceptions of the world, um, uh, inside buildings, outside buildings, in the countryside, in a town, there's a sets of perceptions that arise and are known in, in each moment. So uh, that's uh, one of the reasons why in that dialogue between the Buddha and the, the Deva, Rohitasa, the Buddha said, it's in this, this uh, fathom-long body, and this uh, two-meter-long body that, with its perceptions and thoughts, there's the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So the world happens in the mind. And so it's uh, the, uh, as we were saying, I think in yesterday's reading, those attributes of the world function lawfully in relationship to each other according to cause and effect, so that the laws of nature operate. Um, yeah, there's the, gra the law of gravity. Fun you know, even though this is happening in the mind, this is known in the mind, there is the perception of the force of gravity <laughs> that holds our bodies on the ground. There is the, the laws of biology that, 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 may, that mean our ears receive sound and register those as, uh, as uh, say, meaningful uh, words, hopefully, uh, in the mind. But all of that, uh, feeling, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, there's function according to the laws of nature, but they, uh, they are all known here within the mind in, in this moment. So that's uh, one of the ways of of letting go of becoming and freeing the heart from the, the limitations of that, the bhava nirodo nibbanam, the nibbana is the cessation of becoming, is recognizing that presence, that 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 uh, say timeless quality of nobody's going anywhere. And uh, in Lumpachar's teaching, where he talked about the mind being like still flowing water, so the the perceptions and thoughts they flow, uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, they're in a constant state of flow, but that there is also the quality of stillness, that the attention, uh, the mind that knows that flow is not going anywhere. It's always, it's always right here. So there's this radical quality of stillness and peace. Uh, and if that's recollected, then even if things are moving very fast, you know, you can be, you can be running at speed uh, or going along quickly in a car, um, but uh, there can be still that sense of stillness and that the world flowing through the mind. I would suggest don't do this if you're driving, <laughs> but if you're a passenger in a car, um, there's a, a way you can you can sort of adjust your vision so that rather than seeing it in terms of the car moving down the road, you can sort of tweak your way of seeing and holding the experience that the the, the road is coming through your mind. 
uh, yeah, again, don't try this if you're driving. <laughs> or if, you, if you're a train driver, uh, Juan isn't here, but he's tra- Juan's a train driver. Don't do this if you're driving, cars or trains. Um, but if you're a passenger, it's, it, it can be interesting to, to do, to just see that, that you know, as if you are absolutely still, and then vroom, 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 the, the, the road is, is uh, arising, taking shape and dissolving in the mind. It's also interesting uh, how uh, the, um, uh, the, the mythologist and uh, psychologist uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, people have ever heard of Joseph Campbell, wrote books like The Power of Myth, did interviews with Bill Moyers in, in America. Um, he's a, a brilliant uh, writer and um, on spiritual themes, on psychology, mythology. Uh, he was also a world-class runner. He was a, 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 a half-mile runner, 800-meter eight, uh, runner. And uh, he only didn't run in the Olympics because he peaked. So between two, uh, two, Olymp- two Olympics is... Uh, and when he talks about his own sort of most profound spiritual experience in his life, it was on the running track. And uh, uh, I've, uh, I've really appreciated his writings over the years. And... Um, one of the stories he tells is how he was. They were doing a um, a half mile relay, so he was running against his university was running against another university, and so they had four runners all doing a half mile each, and he was the anchor. He was like the last runner um, for his team. So that and they were running against this other university, so two teams of, of four runners, um, and so uh, the, the the first lots of uh, three runners had, had all gone. And then the opponent's uh, last runner had taken the baton and was was way ahead of him, was sort of fifty or hundred meters down the track ahead of him. And he said, "As soon as the the baton hit my hand, I knew it's my race." And he describes how he just went into this altered state of consciousness. And even though he literally ran the race of his life and he did win, um, he felt this this perfect sense of stillness the whole way, of the way the way through. There was this kind of incredible peace and stillness, even as his body is running <laughs> as fast as he'd ever run in this, uh, in this sort of um, in a, a competition. But yet his inner experience was extraordinarily uh, peaceful and still. So, um, not that we have to be running kind of <laughs> Olympic class races uh, to, to uh, arrive at that realization of stillness, but it's uh, maybe an example of how we don't have to wait for the conditions of the world to be quiet and coherent in order for that quality of, of stillness and peacefulness to be to be realized within us. It's, it's all to do with attitude. Everything hinges around our attitude. So uh, along with um, uh, there's nobody going anywhere, these are just conditions of mind that are changing, which is very helpful uh, on that, that Tudong walk because uh, as I said, I was... I was Quite, uh, I was in my mid twenties. I think I was, let's see, nineteen eighty-three. So I would have been um, twenty-seven when I set off on that that walk. So, so young and energetic, um, and definitely going places, in, uh, and sort of driven by getting to the next thing. So having that as a reminder, you know, there's nobody going anywhere. There are just conditions of mind that are changing. That was a, a wonderful counterpoint to that. Got to get on to the next place, the next meet the next people, get to the next camping spot, the next, the next, the next. 
So that reflection of Lumpur Sumato's it was a reminder just to to know here's the experience of the body moving, the, the body walking and climbing up this hill or um, you know, walking through this uh, this field. Uh, but yet it happens here. <laughs> Even as the body is moving through the English countryside all the way along, it's happening exactly here. Does that make sense? That's, do speak up if it doesn't. Silence. Okay. So to continue. Throughout our lives, since we were small babies until the present, everywhere that we've ever been was always exactly here. When we reflect in this way, we see that the world arises and passes in this mind. We are always here. That realization brings a profound quality of ease and rest. And it's a, it's a here without a there. So even say here, it's a, it might uh, come across as in a, a bit of a dualistic term, but it's just, there's a quality of presence. Um, but it's not uh, feed, uh, in, in, its, in its essence, it's not feeding that uh, duality of self and other here and there, but it's a, it's a quality of, of presence and, uh, and alertness. And also it's connected to that, the fact that you know, Dhamma, uh, the ultimate reality, is unlocated, that really geography in three-dimensional space only really relates to Rupa Kanda, to material form. The world of mind, place and location doesn't really apply. Like where, where does your mind stop and mind begin? doesn't make sense. So that uh, it's, it, the mind doesn't really have a location. It's not in any one spot. So that that quality of, of here-ness or presence is a, another aspect of that uh, non-located quality of, of mind in its ultimate sense. Even as there is the perception of the road rolling away under our wheels, or the sea and land beneath the plane's wings, the feet walking and the world moving, the heart can be fully relaxed and at ease with the present experience. You are always precisely here. When the heart recognizes that the world arises, exists and passes away here, in this sphere of awareness, then there is peace, spaciousness. This is one very accessible aspect of the ending of becoming. Uh, changes are happening. Choices are being made, but the heart is not limited by them. The heart is not identified with them. We can get things done, we can make plans, go for walks, settle family arguments, run an office and catch planes. We can go to the shops or watch the body pacing from one end of the path to the other. But all the time, there's nobody going anywhere. Nobody doing anything. This is really peaceful. That nobody is, in essence, only an apostrophe, a mark, an apostrophe, a mark that designates an absence. It is the insignia of Niroda. If dukkha has ended, that actuality doesn't need to be named, but for the sake of communication, the convention of such signs can be a valid upaya, a skillful means. That is, as long as it's recollected that these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world which the Tathagata uses without misapprehension, uses to conform to common custom 
without clinging to them. So this is one of the reasons why I use the, the for the name of the book catastrophe apostrophe. Uh, also, that the, the words sound like each other. Uh, so and, uh, and also the kata uh, and apo are a pair in Greek, meaning positive and negative. Um, uh, so an apostrophe is a punctuation mark that uh, indicates an absence, like in the word shouldn't, should not, or a would have, would have, or isn't, is not. So it's a mark that designates something that's missing. So uh, that's saying dukkha uh, niroda, uh, that niroda is, uh, is a, it's an apostrophe. It's like a, a word that refers to an absence of dukkha. <laughs> It's a, uh, it's a way of saying, look, notice, there is no dukkha here. Uh, so I'm not, I, I, again, I wondered whether to use such a, a, um, an unusual title and re- realized it would take a bit of explaining. <laughs> it wouldn't be immediately apparent. I haven't come across anybody who said, oh, catastrophe, apostrophe. I get exactly what you mean, Ajahn. I didn't have to read the explanation. I know, I know what that's about. So that hasn't happened quite yet. <laughs> Maybe, but uh, uh, that's uh, I felt is it's a way. Uh, so dukkha niroda, or talking about emptiness, it's it's a uh, a word that is referring to an absence. It's a way of indicating, look, that thing that seemed to be so real and solid, it's not here. Like, or like dukkha. Notice dukkha was here and now it's not. Notice that. Don't 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 miss that. So it's a a, a way of indicating that something is missing. And uh, I feel that's the the way that uh, the third noble truth is talked about as to be uh, to be uh, to be realized, Sachikata Bhanti, uh, and that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would emphasize so often, saying, you know, you have to notice that dukkha has ended because uh, it's space, silence, peace, stillness. They're only noticeable usually in in terms of a contrast to something that's moving or something that's changing or something that's painful. You know, when the when the pain stops, you don't notice. I mean, like, uh, uh, presuming that no one here has got toothache or hasn't had toothache for a few weeks, you know, how many of us have said have woken up this morning and said, "Oh, no toothache." Yeah, you know, I'm just using it as a random example. That that hasn't been a thought in my mind for <laughs> months and months and months and months. I haven't had toothache for a long, long time. So you don't notice the absence. It's not remarkable, you know, uh, that, that that something is not there. Like to, you know, toothache or a, 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 oh look, my legs aren't broken. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not news. It's not remarkable. So that we uh, we need to bring attention to that meaningful absence. So if we don't notice, if there isn't that satchikata bhanti, that noticing of the ending of dukkha. It, the attention goes elsewhere. We get drawn into the next interesting thing or the next problem to be solved, and so that uh, we, we miss that. So that the the apostrophe or the dukkha niroda needs to be realised as a way of saying, "Look, notice." And then, when it is noticed, when that is really appreciated, then the peace that is the result of letting go uh, uh, the, the, uh, is fully appreciated. We don't. It's like we are use we're we're uh, enjoying the the uh, the pl- uh, beautiful and pleasant results of having let go that's uh, the result of of letting go is peacefulness but if there isn't that sachikata bhanti that isn't that isn't that kind of conscious recognition that realization then 
there, there isn't that appreciation of the peace that comes with letting go. The mind just gets busy with the next set of attachments or interests or, or um, worries or distractions. And that uh, passage that I quote here, that's uh, from the Potapada Sutta. Uh, I quoted it earlier in, in the book, but it's uh, one of these, these um, ways that the Buddha talks about a skillful relationship to, to language and concept. These are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehension, uses to conform to common custom without clinging to them. So that's in the, from the Diganikaya Sutta number nine, uh, the Potapada Sutta, and it, it's, a, it's one of the instances where the Buddha is talking about yes, you know, uh, the yes, I use pronouns like you know, uh, or uh, and I talk about this person or that person or, or a past and future, but these are merely common terms, designations used in the world for the sake of communication. That when you say I or she or he or we or they. It's not taken as an absolute separate permanent entity, but it's just a, a way of, of conveniently speaking. So that's one of the, the places where that's uh, really spelled out. Cause it's, and there were, there were times when people did you know, ask the Buddha, uh, well, you, you say all Dhammas are not self, so how come you say you know, he or she or we or they or, you know, or I? Uh, and then the Buddha would respond in this kind of way, yeah, that those words I use, but they're used without... Uh, Without delusion, they're just ordinary turns, uh, phrases, and, and forms of speech, designation in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehension. So it's a, a means of communication, but it's not taken as a, an absolute reality, like calling today Wednesday. You know, it's just a, it's a convention that uh, this, uh, we've, you know, the seven-day week is something that's agreed upon by a, a large number of humans. And there's a choice to say, well, in this particular part of the planet, <laughs> it's Wednesday. It's six twenty in the evening on a Wednesday. Um, it, why? Why is this particular seven you know, seven part pattern? Uh, why is that the convention? Why? Why do in Britain do we name this day after Woden, uh, a, 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 a a god of the of Norse mythology? You know, Woden's day. <laughs> So why do we use that? Because it's a convention. We, we not that we're all worshippers of Woden. Maybe we, some of us might be uh, Wodenites, but uh, we just use the convention. Yeah, Monday is the moon day. Sunday is the Sunday. Yeah, are we sun worshippers or moon worshippers to to use those words? No, it's just Sunday, Monday. Tuesday was a Tu uh, was a war god in the Norse mythology. Woden was the 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 kind of uh, Father God, uh, the uh, the boss and thunderbolt wielder. Thursday, Thor, thunder god. Uh, Friday, named after Freya, who was Woden's uh, queen. And uh, Saturday, after Saturn, got a Roman god in there. <laughs> a, a member of the Roman pantheon comes in on uh, Saturday. Yeah, but we just use these as conventions. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All our our languages in, in Sri Lanka or Thailand or Japan or uh, Germany, uh, Denmark, uh, Poland, <laughs> we have different names for the days of the week. Um, but it's just a convenient way of referring to, okay, 
this on this particular occasion we're going to have this particular gathering for this particular purpose it's a a, a designation convenient uh, for us to get by in the world that's all we don't uh, make anything more of it and if you say i don't believe in 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 wotan or odin therefore you know i, I refuse to call this that, that middle day of the week wednesday <laughs> in thailand it's buddha day one put so when they adopted the seven-day week, they 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 uh, they called it uh, Buddha Day, Wednesday. So, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. I'd like to ask you, in accordance of present of these skandhas, which is um, as a dependent origination, always arising, depends of the other factors. So actually. The mind is shaped by these kandas and by presenting of mental factors. So actually, it's create the events and all this manifestation. Uh, so this combination. Well, the the precise nature of this experience, the 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 way each of our minds experience this present reality there's you, you can say broadly that various causes come together to create this particular set of perceptions but the buddha also pointed out you you can't sort of calculate or designate exactly how everything has come together to make this precise experience for each being in each each moment it's one of the achinteya the uh, the in, imponderables it's kind of beyond the reach of the conceptual mind to sort of name every single cause and condition that's brought about this experience in this moment every action that's been taken every experience that's been known so it's, it's too complicated it's too multi-dimensional yeah, it's not conceivable but uh, uh, but you can broadly divide it into uh, five different sets of contributing factors why you you know you your mind experiences the world as it does in this moment so these are called the five niyama niyama means a law or a, a rule and 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 it represents the orderly quality of nature reality so each one of us experiences these the the the, the fabric of this moment for each one of us is built up of these five different areas so the first one is called utu niyama. Utu literally means the weather. So that's, uh, that means the laws of physics and chemistry. So you experience the force of gravity. I experience, we all experience the force of gravity. Our bodies are, are pulled to the earth. Uh, the, um, the way that sound uh, vibrates the air, um, that uh, uh, that movement of, of air and the way sound works we uh, we experience that so utuniyama is all of us uh, these lives uh, uh, and the, the way that the world works is built up and affected by the laws of physics and chemistry the second one is bijaniyama which is the laws of biology so you can see you can you can hear there's a living being that breathes and uh, has bones and skin and, and so on and so our human birth and 
the way that the human body, the human uh, human sort of system is is built, is all bija niyama. We're not again. It's just like utu niyama. It's not a personal thing. You know, I often say to people, you know, you were not involved in the decision uh, uh, of of, uh, of um, how much an electron should weigh. Or you know you you were not involved in planning the laws of of gravity and the speed of light. It's not personal. This is not something to do with with us. But we experience the the effects of gravity and protons and electrons and neutrons and speed of light and so on. Similarly, bijaniyama, uh, you didn't invent respiration, breathing. <laughs> yeah. You didn't invent walking or seeing or hearing. But we experience that. We have ears and eyes and a, and a, and a body with legs and. And so, bijaniyama is the results is the, the 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 fact of our physical birth and the human form and uh, living in a uh, in a biological uh, see, uh, uh, a world that's affected by laws of biology, and uh, so that again it's not personal. The third one is kamaniyama, so that's where it gets personal. So kama means action that's taken with intention. So we experience the uh, the effects of choices that we have made. So you decided to come to Amravati. You decided to come along to the Dhamma reading. So here you are. <laughs> so, so that one, the third one, is where the the results of individual choices and individual experiences, that, that, that's where that comes into play. So Kamaniyama, the laws of cause and effect around uh, choice. And... Um, intentional action then the, the the fourth one is jittaniyama so the laws of psychology how the mind works the, again and this again is not personal you know you didn't invent memory you you didn't uh, invent uh, the ability of the mind to concentrate you know you didn't invent anger or jealousy or excitement you know or joy these mental states they they're part of the natural uh, makeup of, the, of this uh, the, the, is experienced. They're known here. They're felt here. The feelings of joy or jealousy and, and uh, uh, concentration or distraction. They're all, but they're all to do with how the mind functions and different mind states that can arise. So, uh, and they uh, and like all of them, uttaniyama, bijaniyama, uh, kamaniyama, chittaniyama. Uh, they all function according to, uh, to to laws, to patterns. There's an orderliness to how these aspects of nature work. And then the fifth one is Dhammaniyama, which is representing the the, the relationship between the, you know, the, the whole of, of nature in terms of, of the the conditioned world, but also the unconditioned, and how the un- the unconditioned and the conditioned relate with each other. And again, that's not personal. So uh, each one of us, in every moment, experiences the effects of those five laws operating. It might sound very complicated, <laughs> you know, need, need, a, need a sit down. Uh, but uh, so what, what, uh, if you consider what we all experience in the, in the moment is a combination of those five different uh, patterns, different ways of, of ordering things. And the uh, the only one of those that's got to do with personal choice is kamaniyama, and that um, so th- but that the mind tends to focus on that because that's where we make a difference. The, you know, we we, uh, we we our choices 
can have very little effect on the laws of psychology or the laws of biology or the laws of physics and chemistry. So the attention goes where uh, where, cha- where, uh, we, where we can have an effect. And, and also the Buddha uh, made that emphasis in his teachings. The, you know, pay attention to the choices that you make. That's the bring attention to action and its results. Choose wholesome action. And don't, uh, choose to not follow unwholesome action. That's where we can make a difference with this life. You know, we can't control the other aspects, but where it matters is in uh, the the cause and effect relationship of of our, our actions and our speech. That's where we can make a difference. And it's in this moment, this present moment, uh, the decisions that are made uh, to uh, in relationship to action and speech and steering them towards wholesomeness and, and wisdom, that's where we can make a difference. And that's why he focused uh, a, a huge amount of attention in his teaching. Is that pay attention to the present, do good, refrain from harm, purify the heart. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's the program. <laughs> that's where we, we can uh, make a difference. And so he deliberately avoided talking about things that were beyond the scope of, of our, uh, our kind of personal agency, you know the word agency that you can have an where you can have an effect. So he didn't he didn't talk a huge amount about um, so the origins of the universe or um, sort of metaphysical speculations. Ninety nine percent of his teaching is <laughs> how to work with this body, this mind in a skillful way in the present moment. This is the path whereby liberation can be can be realized. He didn't talk about when people say, well, what's the nature of of, of nibbana or what's what's the nature of ultimate reality or what happens to an enlightened being after the death of the body and he just wouldn't answer just wouldn't give, wouldn't talk about it it's not useful, it doesn't pertain to liberation so, so I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha <laughs> so he kept the attention very clearly focused on where a difference can be made and uh, and so when we we look at our life look at our, our mind and the different things that contribute, you even talking about the five niyamas can make it sound very, very complicated. <laughs> so, what's uh, uh, what's helpful is to be able to recognize that in this moment there's a uh, there's a choice of how this 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 body, this mind is is related to the attitude that we have to this body and mind. And in this moment, it's possible to choose that which is beneficial, that which is leading towards peacefulness and. And freedom, and it's possible to choose that which leads to more confusion and conflict, difficulty. So the um, the the only thing that's really important um, is say, to bring attention to that present experience. Doesn't matter if we can't name every aspect of it. Or how is the consciousness relating to the five khandhas or sankhara and vijnana, or the, <laughs> how 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 much vija needs to be there to get everything right? You know, we can get lost in theorizing but just bringing the attention to the attitude that is there in this moment and to to recognize that and to see is there grasping going on if there's grasping then let go and then notice the results of letting go and then just keep the attention on that that process dukkha and the ending of dukkha and then all of the rest if there's a theoretical understanding of how it all fits together Okay, <laughs> if there isn't, okay, it doesn't. Uh, it's not so important whether we've got a a, uh, a 
kind of a comprehensive map. But uh, just that that moment-to-moment attention on how the mind is handling this present experience and then guiding it towards what is skillful, what's peaceful. That's the most important thing. So I hope that's related to what you were asking. So actually, it's the mind, although with the good qualities and mental factors, which moves. Yeah, that, that's the thing to focus on, just to, what are the, the qualities that lead towards peace and clarity? Okay, <laughs> follow that. What, what are the qualities that lead to conflict and harm and confusion? Okay, incline away from that. If you want to, to reference those, um, uh, those five niyamas in the little booklet uh, called Who is Pulling the Strings? One with a purple cover. It's, it's in the back of that. Tongue. And Ajo very helpfully did some research for me and put together a little sort of comprehensive thing on the five niyamas there. Okay, so to continue. Uh, the last section of, of uh, this part of the book is called Gratitude. As this book reaches its final pages, this is a good time to reflect upon the quality of gratitude. I feel the first person to cultivate gratitude for is the Buddha. Over 2,500 years ago, this one human being woke up to the way things are. That awakening arose through incredible commitment, love of reality, patience, wisdom and effort. The Buddha then undertook to establish the teaching and traditions of Dhamma practice and spent the next 45 years doing so. More than 2,500 years later, we are the beneficiaries of his commitment, his effort, his love and his great genius as a teacher. At the time that the Buddha was teaching, in southern Europe, it was the era of the Greeks, the armies of the city-states and the islands of the Mediterranean fighting against each other, warring over territories. It was relevant to being in the south of France. <laughs> Mediterranean is sort of off in the distance. I mean, you, you couldn't see the sea from the, the retreat center, but uh, it was uh, not that far away. In what is now the United Kingdom, it was still the prehistoric era, the middle of the Iron Age, when the Buddha was teaching in India. So this was uh, in uh, 400, 500 BC, uh, before the Common Era. This was still the Iron Age here in, in uh, this part of the world. Very, very much prehistoric uh, it wasn't even the late Iron Age, it was the middle of the Iron Age, so way back when. From all those centuries ago until our own time, these teachings have sustained themselves. How miraculous and wonderful that they are available to help change our lives, hearts and minds today. We can also send forth feelings of gratitude for those who have helped to bring our lives into being. We can send forth our gratitude, cultivate and radiate a quality of gratefulness and appreciation for all of those hearts and hands that have contributed to creating this opportunity for us, our teachers, our parents, our mentors, and all who have nurtured and nourished us along the way. Life is a relational process. We live in relationship with each other. Our lives are formed from all of the actions, the work, and the bodies and minds of those who have come before us and with whom we interact today. We might feel very independent, But the source of our life is the countless generations of other people, other beings who have gone before and that live along with us now. 
This life exists in relationship to the planet, the land, the air, the plants, the animals and all other living and breathing things. We reflect upon this relational state and, accordingly, express gratitude for all those beings and forces that have supported this life and that continue to help to provide these opportunities. When we cultivate gratitude, it's not just an idea in the mind or a long list of names. We look into the heart. We feel and find that quality of genuine humility and appreciation, joyfulness that there is this connection, this relatedness with others. Along with that gratitude for the blessings that come from others, we can find a joy that we are also able to be of assistance, that we can be a source of blessings and benefit to others ourselves. How wonderful that our words and our actions and our work can be a source of benefit to other beings. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So I thought that that was a um, suitable way to end the book. It's also often uh, when we're leading retreats and um, uh, at the ending of a retreat, that sense of sharing blessings and, and offering up the goodness of our lives consciously. Uh, it's, it's easy living in a monastery or being in a meditation retreat. We can get very focused on our, our mind and our story and our thing uh, and you know, working on our, our own minds, which is, you know, what we're, we're here very much to do. I, I can't work on your mind. <laughs> I can work on this mind. Uh, we, but we, uh, we do affect each other. We live in relationship to each other. So even though I can't work on your minds, um, then uh, uh, what I do, how I act, and say things like these readings, you know, they, they, they can have an effect. And so uh, the conscious cultivation of gratitude is in a sense looking up from the immediate working with our own thoughts and feelings and that to to realize that we are, you know, it's not just my life, you know, that my life is intrinsically related to other lives, the, the, the food that we eat, the people in our families, the people that we live with, the, the people that we've encountered along the way, the, the many uh, teachers we've had, the people who've been problematic for us, uh, the people who run the government, and, and uh, people who grow the food and, and, uh, and uh, cook it and provide it. You know, as we live in a relational state. And so that uh, uh, I felt that in, uh, uh, say, uh, the effort to work on our own minds, our own lives, is also a recognition that you know, our lives don't just sort of stop at the, at the skin, but our, our lives incorporate others. If we look at the, the whole biosphere, um, we, uh, uh, we can't really think of ourselves as, as individuals. Maybe in the eyes of the law, we're individuals. <laughs> the... the, the uh, the uh, ordinary, everyday, uh, say, uh, way we function as a, as a human group, we're, we're individuals. But even our own bodies, you know, that we say, I'm an individual. But actually, the, the body is more like a metropolis. The, uh, the, it's like a whole city or a whole nation. Um, they say 90% of the DNA in your body is not human. Might be a frightening thought. But all of the little micro-organisms... Um, that which, of which there are a lot, you know, on our skin, in our guts, and around and about. We we are a metropolis. We're a, we're a city. We're not just a, an individual thing. And I don't think that's just urban legend or biological legend. Ninety <laughs> percent of the DNA in our bodies is not human. It's the you know little uh, bac- you know, bacteria and uh, and you know different um, flora and fauna, microscopic and uh, and uh, various different kinds. If you put your, your skin under a microscope, it's amazing the populations of different 
things that are living there, even when you've cleaned your hands. <laughs> the, uh, the, the body is a consortium, it's a collection. And so we too are a cell within a larger organism, we're, a, we're part of a whole biosphere. And it's not just, say, a, a thought that comes to mind in a Dhamma teaching, but we can you know, recognize that, that you know, we exist in a relational state to the, the living world, the, the, the air that we breathe, the water we drink, the, the land we're walking on, the food that we eat, the people that we live with. You know, we're, we, we, we overlap, we, we're, we're connected, we, we relate with each other. And then, so on that basis of, of relatedness, then gratitude is a very, uh, very skillful and uh, wholesome way to to uh, to say uh, cultivate uh, the uh, the the mode of of connection, you know, gratefulness and you know, appreciation for what has contributed to what what benefits we experience and the, the blessings and the possibilities that we have in, in these lives. Um, so it's not to create a sense of indebtedness uh, of uh, you know I owe. <laughs> if you think of all the people who've helped you, we, that you, we owe people as if we're indebted, um, and uh, but rather uh, gratefulness or gratitude, uh, appreciation. It's a, it's an enjoyment as a as as a quality of of delight. The the, um, uh, the well known. Christian monk, Brother David Steindlerust, who's um, someone who's a very... I've met him a few times, and he's a very a wonderful person, a very, very fine teacher. Uh, his, his whole kind of spiritual message is gratefulness. I think his, his website is gratefulness.org. <laughs> and uh, a book of his is called Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. And uh, this is a, a focus for, for, for him in his, uh, in his spiritual approach. So he's, he's a, a Christian monk, he's, a, I think, a Cistercian monk. Um, uh, but his, his message is very universal, and, um, that, uh, uh, and that's his way of speaking is based upon spirituality and that sense of letting go of self-concern, self-view, manifests itself as gratefulness, a sense of appreciation. And, uh, uh, and it's a, uh, I find a, a very beautiful way to, uh, to say, cultivate your sense of, of um, connection with others. When we do the sharing of blessings, then there's the, the words that, that we have there, we can use those. You know, those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. So it's a conscious sharing. Uh, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. So it's a, a way of, of expressing generosity, of unselfishness, of kindness, and will come together in that attitude of gratitude. So I felt that was a, a good way to bring this little book on dependent origination and cessation to a close, because also cessation can, can come across like a, an absence, <laughs> something has ended. But I would say that the, uh, one of the partners of Dukkha Niroda is, is gratefulness or appreciation. And one of the, 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 one of the most touching, um, the, it's a very, very short passage in, this, in this, the suttas, I think it's in the, the um, uh, the story of the, the the Buddha just after the enlightenment, 
and uh, he looks around the world. He uses his psychic powers to sort of cast his vision around the world, and he realizes I'm the only enlightened being in the world. I haven't got anybody to look up. There's nobody I can validly bow to or or, or look up to as a teacher. And he feels sad. He's like, oh, that's uh, there's there's no one that I can respect, no one I can look up to. I'm I'm having arrived at Buddhahood. And then he has the realization: Oh, that there is the Dhamma that I can, I can pay respect to, I can bow to, I can, I can honor and revere. And there's all right, I can, I can pay respects to the Dhamma, I can bow to the Dhamma. And um, so that to me, that's a very, uh, very sort of lovely gesture. He feels like, oh, that's a disappointment. I've got no, no one I can look up to. <laughs> uh, that as uh, a feeling of uh, of a um, uh, something missing. And then realizing, oh, I can, I can be grateful to uh, to the Dhamma. I can pay respects to the Dhamma. I can honor that. Um, and so that, uh, with the dukkha niroda, the you know, cessation of dukkha, to to see that a partner or an expression of that is um, is gratefulness. Uh, we're not totally enlightened Buddhas, so we <laughs> we have got people that we can. We can look up to and, and express appreciation for, but I, I feel that's a, um, uh, a a very helpful quality. If we're talking about the ending of dukkha, then that uh, that conscious recognition of our relatedness to the rest of the living uh, the living world, the living universe, then that uh, using say the words of that sharing of blessings, and may all beings receive the blessings of my life, may they soon attain the threefold bliss. And realize the deathless. That's a a very uh, say a beautiful way of uh, uh, say living living out the implications of dukkha niroda. If all the you know, clinging has stopped and suffering, uh, there's no suffering. Then uh, consciously including the lives of others, and then that taking shape in terms of uh, gratefulness is uh, something very very wonderful that we can bring into the world. So, any questions, thoughts? Speak up. If, yes. It's her again. Um, <laughs> by the way, how you describe all these um, events from very much base, when we cannot find ourselves anymore, like when we look from more wide perspective. Mm-hmm. So, then why are we talking about one mind stream? We can just build up the qualities of the mind and to work with the, as you say, like with the presence. How is, so is there a mind stream then? There, I, I would say tendencies? it's a convention of speech to say that a mind stream, it's a, you know, our lives overlap and we affect each other, but to a certain degree, Choices that are made in this particular area have a, and if, have effects that that are felt here, uh, so that it's a um, I would say it's a it's a convention of of speech. You can but like like any aspect of language, um, it's uh, it's a convenient fiction. It's a convenient way of speaking, um, and so you know that the. the, uh, the 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 Buddha would quite happily talk about you know this person this being is enlightened this one is not enlightened this one is a stream enterer that one's a, a, a non-returner so there are sort of distinctions between individual beings but uh, um, 
I will also say that um, you know there is it's a a mistake to think of some kind of absolute division. So you can say that the the river Gade flows through this valley, but that river Gade, talking about that river, it's also connected to a lot of other water, you know, water systems in in the land. You can say yeah, that's the river Gade. It's it's been called that for a long time, and it flows through the valley. But the water that comprises that river and its connection with other uh, other streams or other water systems underground and and how they all work together. That's very kind of vast and complex, but that's still the river gate. <laughs> so that uh, we are, to some extent, we're like, like a river, you know, we're an individual and we've got a name, gate. Uh, but that life of the river gate, just as our life, is a fluid process and is connected. I mean, you're not the same person as you were yesterday. You know, you've been breathing, probably eating, you know, that some of what you are today was in the larder yesterday. <laughs> Same with all the rest of us, you know. And so, like a river, there's water constantly coming into it and then flowing along, but the, out of an ordinary sort of a convenience of expression, we say the river gade. It's like that particular flow of water going through that particular part of the countryside, so we call it that's the river gade. But the water that comprises it is changing all the time, and it's connected to all kinds of other systems. And the rain that falls down, and what is called rain, one moment is then it falls onto the river, and it's become river. Still water. <laughs> so when we talk about a mind stream or a, a, a life, it's like well, yes and no. It's a it's a, a convenient way of speaking. So it's a, it's a good enough way of talking. You're looking perplexed. Yeah, because when I look at this compulsive thinking like this, what pull us, um, this compulsiveness, mm -hmm. which pull us, this, so we are following this, uh, I want, I want, this view or... Well, like a river, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of habits that have got a particular direction, like a, a river follows the shape of the valley and the force of gravity, and the rivers flow downhill. Um, and so these minds and their flow of thoughts and emotions on account of the particular conditioning of the events of this life or the choices that have been made, also the biology of how, you know, who your parents were, um, what their minds were like, you know, their personalities and their lives and so on, all the all of that is feeds into the river <laughs> that is this this person and sees and the, is the the causes that contributes to the causes that come together to make this particular pattern of uh, of thinking, these interests or these fears or these uh, these uh, confusions or irritations, inspirations. They, uh, we can say that that's this person or this 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 mind stream. But the, the Buddha was really careful in he in the way he languaged things, to to not give the idea of separate individual permanent entities. So when he talked about you know this being is enlightened or this one is not enlightened, this one has you know, been reborn in the Tavatimsa heaven, then uh, again it was that in the light of um, that. 
passage from the Potapada Sutta, the, uh, these are merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world which the Tathagata uses without misapprehension, uses to conform to common custom without clinging to them. So it, it's, and he was very uh, thorough, very precise in, in when he would talk about you know this person or that person. He think, yeah, that this is a, a, a designation according to common speech and common uh, uh, forms of communication. He's not talking about a permanent individual entity, but he still say this person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, this is Sariputta, you know, this is Mahamogalana, this is... So he would use those conventions, but without uh, that, um, making assumptions about that. So when we, we, we use a word like an individual, it's an approximation. That makes sense? There's a going back to the biology of it. Um, I, I think we've got a copy in the library here. There's a book called "The Lives of a Cell" by um, uh, is a a, a, um, a a biologist who who wrote these. Uh, uh, he used to write articles for a particular science magazine, um, and uh, <coughs> He, uh, so it's, that's the first of the articles. The first chapter in that book is called The Lives of a Cell. And just in one cell of the body, he kind of goes through all the different things that make up a, an ordinary cell in our bodies. And a, a cell is like a metropolis. <laughs> all these amazing different things that come together to, uh, to make up just one cell of our body. And, uh, and the lives of a cell are... Um, not, not to get too distracted into the biology of it, but one of the interesting things, I think, in that, that essay um, is how the, the, the things in our cells that uh, take oxygen and turn oxygen into energy, they're called, they're called mitochondria. And uh, you're probably a scientist yourself. <laughs> so they're called mitochondria. And those mitochondria... They are the descendants of blue-green algae that were our ancestors you know, like a billion years ago. They're still in our cells. Our great, 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 long before there was male and female, kind of great, 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 grandparents, back in literally the time of when life on Earth was like blue-green algae. And they're still with us. That's what helps. That's what we, when we breathe in oxygen, the oxygen is turned into energy through those little <laughs> mitochondria that are still doing their thing and they've just they got somehow they got brought together and 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 worked into operating with each other and turned into this energy producing factory so we're carrying around our, our billion year ancestry is the very thing that when you breathe in anapanasati <laughs> this like we're using these these ancestors from a billion years ago to stay alive. So that uh, it, and to me, I, I find those those things interesting because it's it really cuts through the atta. You know, I am this person. <laughs> this is this is who and what I am. Well, no, we're a, a, a long. These bodies 
and minds are a long part of a long evolutionary process, a massive collection of causes and effects and conditions over millions and millions of years come to make this. So when we say I, or I want, or I do, or I should, that's very definitely a, an approximation. So it, and uh, when that's reflected on, then that you know the body is not self. It's like yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the body is a is a kind of a, is a, a kind of museum or a, a, a living uh, collection of of different uh, aspects that have come together to make this. You couldn't survive without all the bacteria in your digestive system. If we didn't, if we didn't have all those little um, little uh, intestinal flora, we're finished. We, we can't, you know, we we need them to survive. So all those non-human, all that non-human DNA is essential. <laughs> so when we say I, uh, I, you know, I am or I do, that it's those kind of reflections are, are helpful to. To recognize, well, that's just a, a convenient mode of speech. It's that the, the rupan anatta, the body is not self. <laughs> it's not an I, it doesn't belong to an I. It's this, like a river, it's a collection of different elements that come together and they have this form in this moment. Um, but uh, it's not an individual, it's not a person, it doesn't belong to a person. And then that helps the mind to hold it all in a more. Um, skillful context to let go of those uh, those um, the habits of thinking in terms of I and me and mine so I hope that clarifies things rather than <laughs> so there I'll finish there to, for today there is one more section of the book there's an appendix which uh, I will read next time, but uh, my plan is that uh, we have this wonderful book of Venerable Paiutos called The Dependent Origination. So, um, well, and also tomorrow is the observance day, so Lumpur Samadhi will be giving a talk in the afternoon, so there won't be any more readings for a couple of days. But then after we've, I've done that last one in here, then I thought I'd give some readings from the, the uh, Paiuto Dependent Origination book to share that with everyone, since that's a, a wonderful resource. But I'll leave it there for today. Handa mayanda mauvada kataya sadhu karanda damase sadhu sadhu sadhu.